0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Do you open your Bibles or your apps to Acts chapter 17, Acts the 17th chapter? We continue our study of the book of Acts after taking a week off for Easter. This very well could have been an Easter message. We're going to talk about the resurrection a couple of places here. But we come together to continue our study. Acts will take us through the summer months, and uh, then who knows where from there. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked or greatly distressed, it says in one translation, within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, then the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. And also some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. actually disputing is a better translation. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others say he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Arab Hagis, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you're proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood up in the midst and then he preached to them. Paul engages the Greeks on their home turf, understanding their culture, speaking truth to them about Jesus. Father, once again, we come into your presence, and this time, Father, we ask you to help us to see truth and respond to it. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. This is a classic passage, classic example of engaging the lost by understanding their culture. I mean, Paul goes to Greece, he understands their culture, he actually quotes two of their poets, he talks about idols that he sees in their streets, he even talks about a specific idol, an idol to an unknown God, he understood the culture to which he was speaking. For those of us as believers, we want to understand the times. We want to understand the world we live in. We understand the the country we live in. We want to understand the state we live in. Most of us are Texans. Many of us have been here many years, and we know Texas has a unique culture. If you can do ministry here, you need to understand the culture. So I I Googled some things up, and uh, you understand the culture of Texas when you know that your high school football stadiums are bigger than most college stadiums, right? I mean, the state of Texas, if you don't know that, you need to understand that. Uh, You know what H-E-B stands for, and you're part of the Texan culture, right? Uh, What does H-E-B stand for? How many of you did not know that? Raise your hands. Be honest. There you go. Okay. Now you're getting indoctrinated in Texas culture. Howard E. Butt was the founder of H-E-B, and that's what the H-E-B stands for. You thought it stood here or enough baskets for everyone, but something different. Uh, You understand Texas? Amen. Uh, those are two of our guys. I think it's Sonic on 31st. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, seeing a single horse at a fast food joint is not out of the ordinary. If a small town is only one chain restaurant, you can bet it's a dairy queen. Uh, you, you understand the Texas culture. If you're traveling on I-35, you make a point to grab from Colossus, some check stop. I know I go to Saloxic on the other side. And uh, you understand that. That was actually online. Uh, you know you're in Texas and understand the culture when you pay more attention to the heat index and the temperature. Uh, You've also burned yourself with a seatbelt buckle, then you know you have lived in Texas for a while. This is how Texans see the rest of the United States. (laughs) You know, when I came here 34 years ago, didn't understand all that, I do now, and uh, that's part of it. How many of you have seen the movie, Bernie? The movie Bernie, uh, it is, uh, I I don't watch movies more than once, I watched Bernie three times because it was so funny. And in there, there's actually, they use a lot of people, it takes place in Carthage, Texas, true story about a guy who was a murderer actually, but a funny murderer, and uh, (laughs) he was. And uh, there's early on in that movie, what you find is a description of the state of Texas by a guy who's not an actor, he's actually a guy who lives in Carthage. And so they just found this guy who lives in Carthage and they put him up there. Here's how, you want to understand Texas, he'll give you an understanding of Texas. Terry. Carthage is in East Texas, and it's totally different from the rest of Texas, which could be five different states, actually. You got your West Texas out there with a bunch of flat ranches. Up north, you got Dallas snobs with their Mercedes. And then you got the Houston, the carcinogenic coast is what I call it, all the way up to Louisiana. (coughs) Then down south, San Antonio uh... That's where the tax meets the max, like the food. And then in Central Texas, you got the People's Republic of Austin, with a bunch of hairy-legged women and liberal fruitcakes. <laughs> of course, I left out the Panhandle, and a lot of people do. But Carthage. <laughs> this is where the South begins. Pretty good description, isn't it? Yeah. You're going to go watch the movie now. I don't get royalties from it, but it's, uh, it's worth picking up. Uh, but, but you need to understand the culture you're in. Uh, I've got another slide, I think. Uh, Terry, we got that one. There you go. Um, Mater's, taters, cucumber, peach, yellow squash, zucchini, okra, and uh, purple pearl peas. Uh, one of my friends from Mississippi sent me that, actually. It's, uh, <laughs> If you're there, you understand that culture as well. In First Chronicles chapter 12, it says from Issachar, there were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. There were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. They were students of the culture. We're about David's mighty men and the men who helped David in battle. The men of Issachar were some of those men. And First Chronicles describing those folks, it, it talks about men who understood the culture they were in. They understood who, what the culture was like, and therefore they came alongside David. And they knew as a result of the culture what Israel should do. I picked that verse out because I think that's what Paul did in, in Acts chapter 17. And I think as believers in Christ, that's what we should be doing right now. We should understand the times, understand the culture around us. That not just the culture of Texas, as I, we laugh together, but understand the culture of our nation and understand the culture of our world so that we can engage it for the purpose of the gospel. That's what we're going to look at this morning. That's what Paul did. That's what the Minervisicard did in Old Testament times. Paul was really a country bumpkin in the minds of uh, those in Athens who came to town. His sermon on Morris Hill, the Arepagus, the Latin translation of Arepagus is Morris Hill. That's where we get that term from. Uh, we, we're going to see it's a classic example of how to engage the, 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 those of a different culture. The place we're talking about is Athens. We left Paul in Berea in our last study. There's a map up in the PowerPoint in front of you. And we left him in Berea. He's on the second missionary journey. He's been the Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, then Berea. That's where they studied the scriptures. And where we left Paul, he was running for his skin, actually, from Berea. They put him on a ship, and he set sail for Athens. He arrives in Athens. Athens was an interesting place. Athens was filled with idols. It was estimated in the time of Paul, this is actually from a museum in Athens currently. We were privileged to be there a number of years ago as we led a tour in Paul's journeys. And in the time of Christ, in the time of Paul, Athens' heyday was passed. It had been about 200 years earlier, now the Romans ruled the world, and Athens' heyday was passed. But in the time of Christ, Athens had about 15 to 20,000 people populating the city. It was said that there were over 30,000 idols in public places alone in Athens. That include private places or temples. 30,000 in public places alone. And so uh, one, one author I read said, uh, quoting a historian from that time said, you were more likely to see an idol than a man on the streets of Athens. There were more idols than there were people in Athens in the first century. And so it's a city filled with all these idols that people are worship. Even though its heyday was past, it was still considered by many as the intellectual center of the world at that time. It may be like Boston in our day and age in our nation where you have Harvard, MIT, Juilliard, and uh, other schools of higher education. Uh, what you find is that Athens was revered and respected as a place of education, a place of uh, dialogue, a place of philosophy. Socrates, then Plato, then Aristotle all came from Athens. The center of Athens was the Acropolis, the Acropolis. Uh, Acropolis is a combination compound Greek word, acro, talking about a high point polis, a city. The Acropolis is a high point of cities. Every city had a high point, but the Acropolis in Athens was the most famous. This is the Parthenon. <clears throat> it was the largest building on the Acropolis in Athens. It was a place of exchange of ideas, a place of commerce, a place of education. Many things happened in the Parthenon. So at the citadel, citadel, this this high rocky outcropping, there are several ancient buildings from the, and uh, it's there that uh, we read about where Paul was. Specifically, it says he went to the area of Pagus. This is a picture today of the Areopagus. We're able to climb those stairs when we visit. The Areopagus is actually a hilly outcropping, rocky outcropping. It's 514 feet uh, to, above the city, and uh, it's a hill of 514 feet, rather. And it was there that the Supreme Court of Athens met prior to Paul's time. By the time of the first century, it had lost its significance and influence. It was now a place where religious, philosophical, educational discussions took place. There was no decision-making on the area of Pegas. It was merely a place where scholars came together, intelligent folks came together to talk about philosophy, religious, educational issues. It was no longer where the Supreme Court met. And so Athens' heyday is passed. All these ancient places were in usage in the past. Paul goes there, and uh, he begins to talk about the Savior. But if you look at verse one, I, I'm sorry, verse 16, it says, "Paul was waiting for them in Athens, but something happened. He's walking the streets of Athens, and his spirit is being provoked within him, because he saw all these idols. He's seeing all these idols, all these false gods, all these people who are being deceived. And his spirit is provoked. It's an interesting word. Back in Acts chapter 15, when Paul was setting out on the second missionary journey, if you remember, he and Barnabas were going to go together, but Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, and it says there was a sharp disagreement between them. Same word, same word. It's the concept of, of being provoked on the inside, of being distressed on the inside. And as Paul and Barnabas had this disagreement, this great distress between them, likewise Paul is moved on the inside because he sees all these idols and recognizing that all these people are lost. He's distressed over what's happening in the city. Philip, or Philip Kent Hughes in his commentary on, um, on Acts says this every idol demonstrated the Athenians' hunger for God, but it also testified to their spiritual emptiness. Ignorant of the true God, they were lost. Paul was desperate, he was angry, he was heartbroken over the lostness of the Athenians. He walked the streets, and his spirit is provoked on the inside. He sees all these idols. That represent really nothing. Knowing people are doomed because of it, and he's distressed. You know, as I was reading that, studying that in my office this week, the question I asked myself, and I ask you, when was the last time you've been distressed over lost people? I mean, the last time you wept because somebody that you know doesn't know Jesus. The last time your heart burned within you because a family member, a friend, a neighbor, or a colleague does not know the Savior. Here's Paul, and he's walking the streets of Athens, and he, he's distressed on the inside. His heart is desperate. A.B. Simpson was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination. A guest in Simpson's home arose early one morning, walked down the hallway to a study, and before he walked in the study, he heard a noise. He looked, and there he saw Dr. Simpson. On his knees, his hands draped over a globe of the world. Tears flowing down his face. Crying out, God save the lost. God save the lost. God save the lost. Distress. Desperation. Because of the lostness of mankind. William Booth was a founder of the... Salvation Army, which is actually a church, as well as those who help people in need. He had an audience with King Edward VII of England. When he was there, the king talked about uh, and complimented his unflagging zeal and work among the poor. Booth and his audience with the king responded, Your Majesty, some men's passion is for gold, some for fame. My passion for the souls of men. When's the last time you've been in distress or despair because somebody doesn't know Jesus? The last time you're on your knees just begging for someone's salvation. The last time you wept tears because of someone's lostness. Paul walks the streets of Athens. He walks the streets of Athens and he sees their lostness. And so he note what he does. He saw, he felt deeply, but then he responded. He responded. Look at the next verse in verse 17. <clears throat> so he was reasoning. It's the same word that we find earlier in the, in the same, ver- same chapter, chapter verse 2, as well as in verse 11. He's reasoning in the synagogue. I assume he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath because then it says every day he went in the marketplace. The, the word for marketplace is agora. He went to the agora. If you've got agoraphobia, you have fear of the marketplace, fear to get out of the house. And so it says he would go and he would go to the the synagogue and there were God-fearing people there. He reasoned with them and he'd go to the marketplace and and, and he he would reason with them. He would speak to them truth. And so Paul saw, he felt, but note what else Paul did. He responded. He responded. He, He didn't go rent an apartment in Athens and just stay holed up there the whole time. Hey, he didn 't go find a motel six, leave the, left the light on and, and hope somebody else would join him but But what he did is he went and he engaged the culture. Let me contrast that to what many in the evangelical church do today. We, we see the lostness of our culture we are provoked by the lostness of our culture. We are distressed by the lostness of our culture, but our response oftentimes is angry complaints about what the world is coming to. It's bemoaning what the future holds. It's begging God to come back as judge. And for many of you, and you've told me, I pray Jesus comes back soon and bails us out. I mean, that's sick. You've got a lost and dying world and your prayer is, God, come and get me out of here. I mean, do you see the difference? I mean, the difference is, here's Paul in the midst of a world that is, uh, that, that is just like a sewer worshiping all these false idols, and he goes out and he engages that world. And for many of us, what we want to do is be beamed out of here. And, and what a tragedy. One of my greatest fears for the evangelical church is we have lost our saltiness. We've lost our, our, our touch with, uh, lost touch with the unbelieving world. We live among unbelievers, we, 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 we work with unbelievers, but we want to get back to our Christian huddles as quickly as we possibly can because we don't want to engage our unbelievers. To me, it's tantamount to this. We're all on a ship, the ship is sinking, we have a life jacket, there are people who are drowning in the ocean, and what we're saying is, you should have learned how to swim. You should have learned how to swim a long time ago. You're getting what you deserve. You're getting what you deserve. You, you're filthy, whatever. When we have a life jacket that we could take off and throw to them because we know where we're headed or where we could jump in the water and potentially be part of the rescue mission. But I, I tell you, from my perch and looking at the evangelical church, listening to many people, it's God, bring us out of this mess. Take us away from this. Protect us from it rather than having broken hearts over it like Paul did and responding by jumping in and engaging the culture. Where are you in that process? Where are you? Do you run from Bible study to Bible study to Bible study? Run from Christian school, Christian college, Christian world? And I'm not, don't send me emails about dissing on Christian, whatever. I'm not doing that. Or maybe I am. Because here's what I'm saying. I think most of us would rather be separated from the world that's lost and dying than engaged in the world. Jesus was a friend of the religious. How about your New Testament says? What's it say? Friend of sinners. Lost people. When was the last time you had a lost person in your house? Intentionally. I mean, they may say a bad word in front of my kids. Hey, your kids are hearing worse stuff than that, even if they're homeschooled. That's your house. Don't catch that. You're up my house, really? Yeah, really. So I've dissed on everybody. Who have I missed? I mean, really, my, my fear is folks like us. Jesus says we'd be in the world but not of the world. And I recognize that. But, you know, Paul was moved and he did something about it. He didn't say, God, take me home and beam me up. You, know, you got, you got bring judgment upon those pagans but God, w- w- would you allow me to speak to them? And that's what happened. Well, it, it goes on. Look at verse 16. And also some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers were conversing, actually disputing with him as a better translation. They're saying, what would this idle babbler have to say to us? He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Notice plural there. He's talking about many gods because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection uh, deities. He's only proclaiming Jesus. Well, Jesus is masculine. The word resurrection is feminine or, or masculine. The word resurrection is feminine. Maybe they're thinking he's talking about a God and a goddess. Jesus is the God and the resurrection is a the goddess. They don't know anything about what resurrection is. Or we don't know what it is, but what we do know is that they look at him and, and they say, this guy is an idol babbler, which is an inter- interesting word. It's the Greek word spermos logos, spermos. We get the word seed from it. Sperm seed logos word. He, 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 he takes seeds. He takes words and they're like seeds. It's used of a bird that goes from place to place, picking up seeds. What they're saying is, here's a guy who has no original ideas of his own. He gathers ideas from this place, this place, this place. They're really throwing rocks at him. They're saying, hey, he doesn't have an original thought. All he does is get somebody else's ideas, somebody else's ideas, and we don't understand a word he's saying. I love it that philosophers are saying they don't understand. Because philosopher, definition of a philosopher, somebody who says something they don't understand and make you feel like it's your fault. That's a philosopher. And so these philosophers, and word he's saying you now, there are two groups, two major groups of philosophers in Paul's day. Uh, these are the people we're talking about: the Epicureans and the Stoics. Epicureans and Stoics. The Epicureans were basically agnostics, and the agnostic ah meaning not, gnostic meaning knowledge is no knowledge of God. You, you can't really there's a God, but you can't really know him. The Stoics are pantheists. Pan means all, Theist, God, everything and everybody's a God. That's why they had all these idols. Everything's a God. Trees are God. The rivers are God. All these idols are gods. People can become gods. Everything's a God. So you've got agnostic, I, uh, the, the word a, uh, or i meaning not. Gnostic, you can't know God. Pan meaning all, Theist meaning God. Everything and everybody's a God. The Epicureans saw the purpose in life, this is a good American dream and philosophy, that the purpose of life is to enjoy pleasure and avoid pain. And we say, well, yeah, I'm in favor of that one. Uh, that was the Epicurean way. The, the Stoics were fatalistic resignationists. Basically they believed everything was predetermined by the gods and they just lived life and they were basically fatalists. So that's why we use the word, he's a Stoic. He's a Stoic. That means he's serious. He's serious. He, he, he doesn't laugh. He, he's stoic in his behavior. And that's where the concept comes from. They were fatalistic. They were resigned, that they had no control over anything. And so they were fatalistic on their outlook of life. Uh, the Epicureans believed in no afterlife. The stoics were really not sure about any of that. And so these are the two groups of people that Paul's facing. These were the intelligentsia of the day, the PhDs, the, the, the people who debated things, the people that, wanted to, that, that is spoken of in verse 21 when it says uh, they, would t- they would take time to talk about these things and discuss these things. These are the people that Paul was talking to. And so what we find here is that Paul steps up and he talks to these two groups of people. He, he is a babbler. He is a seed picker. He's a country bumpkin. Years ago, when our kids were little, we went to a mall in Austin. I can't remember what mall it was. And uh, our kids were riding up and down the escalator. There were probably about four and two, five and three, something like that. You know how many escalators are in Temple, Texas? Think about that. Is there an escalator anywhere in Temple? I, I don't know of one. So we go to the mall. My kids are having a ball. Me and they're the whoa, dad, what is this? Look at this stairs, that move. And so they're going up and down the escalator. I'll never forget this is when I could hear something. There was an older couple sitting behind us looking back. They're probably about 45 as I think about it now. But they said, uh, Country bumpkins come to town. Never forget that. And I thought, well, you're right. I live in a little town where we never escalators, a bunch of country bumpkins. But I did grow up in New Orleans and lived in Dallas and Baton Rouge, and I could bend you in a hat. No, I didn't. <laughs> But, but here's what happened. Look at what Paul did. In, in verse 19, it says, they took him and brought him to the area of Pegas. He went and engaged them. He, he went. He, he didn't hold up and separate himself. He went and said, I'll go and talk to your folks. I, I'll go and be part of I, I'm not going to be a separationist. I'm not going to be an isolationist. I, I, I'll go and talk to, to them. I, I, I'll go and defend the faith. I'll be an apologist. You know what I find interesting in our day and age? A lot of people want to study apologetics. want to study apologetics. Defense of the faith. That's what it means. You know what most Christians use apologetics for? To secure their own faith. You don't find them out engaging the unbelieving world. You don't find folks studying apologetics so they can go engage pagans and unbelievers. You don't find them debating with philosophers out in the public forum anymore. What we do is we study apologetics to make us feel better about ourselves. Hey, or we go teach other believers apologetics so we can feel good about teaching them what we know. If I understand apologetics a defense of the faith and so we can go and defend the faith against those who are not believers. And there's nothing wrong with studying apologetics. Don't send me Gary, should No, you should study that. But if we're wise, we'll use it to engage the unbelieving world around us. Not run from them, but engage them. You know... What happened is a number of years ago, and we've discussed this among our leadership many times, it used to be that if you're going to be a really godly person, you become a missionary or a pastor. And so what we didn't do, we didn't trumpet the successful Christian businessman, or scientist, or educator or physician or a lawyer or a school teacher or you name it, whatever it is. And so we surrendered the academy and we surrendered science and we surrendered politics and we surrendered law and, and the unbelieving world took that over. And then we clucked our tongues at the world around us and the culture around us and look what it's come to. And a lot of it's because we vacated those spots as the church and we're guilty. What I appreciate about generations coming up now is we want to engage, we want to be part of, we want to have a voice in politics, a voice in business, a voice in science, a voice in education, a voice in law, a voice in all these places. What happened is the church became irrelevant in many cities. In fact, the NFL has greater impact on Sundays in most cities than the church does. Just the cold, harsh reality. And we have surrendered. And then it saddens me when we become critics of believers who choose to get involved in combating and fighting it out and slugging it out like Paul did. Those of you in the realm of science you may recognize the name Francis Collins. Some of you recognize the name Francis Collins. Francis Collins the head of the Genome Project. Devoted and avowed atheist. In his scientific studies he saw the order of creation and everything there. He became a devoted follower of Jesus through that. It's an amazing story. He's one of the most brilliant scientists in our day and age, and he battles it out in the academy. He battles it out in the sciences right now. I'm listening to the radio the other day, and and this just ticks me off, to be honest with you. I mean, what happens among believers now is we become, because we don't engage the lost world, we become critical of one another. And so here's Francis Collins, devouted atheist, who becomes a strong believer. He's speaking up for Christ in the, in the academy in the world and realm of science. And I'm listening to the radio, and these guys are taking him to task because he doesn't, he, he's an old earth, uh, not, not a six-day creationist. And these guys in the radio have going off on him because he doesn't believe in a young earth or a literal six-day creation. Now, I I, I still hold to young earth, six-day creationism, and so so I listen to to these guys and say, why would you do that? Here's a brother who's slugging away in the academy. He holds a little different interpretation than you do on creation. And you're going to diss him on the radio. Shame on you. Then there's a guy named Joel Hunter. Anybody recognize that name? Not many of you will. Joel Hunter pastors a church in Orlando, Florida. Our staff, uh, we've traveled to different cities over the years, and we meet with uh, the leadership in different churches. And we picked Joel Hunter's church to go to because it's a church that is doing a phenomenal ministry in Orlando. If you go to Northland's website, you'll find their doctrine is very similar to ours. But you know why Joel Hunt is criticized by many? In fact, some of you are going to cluck your tongues in a second. Let me tell you why. Because once a week he picks up the phone and he calls President Obama and he prays with him. And some of you said, really? I don't know Obama would do that. And some of you think, why would a pastor do that? Why? Why would you not engage somebody who leads a nation and ask you to pray with them? And some of you think, well, it's not doing much good, I can tell you that. <laughs> I wouldn't sit in the church with that guy, I can tell you that. Hey, go online. Google up criticisms of and you fill in the blank. Rick Warren, Chuck Smendal, John MacArthur, John Piper, Beth Moore. Whatever happened to Grace? I mean, mean Christians bother me. I'm sounding pretty mean up here today, actually. I can't stand mean Christians. But, I mean, really, what happened to grace? What happened to kindness? What happened to love? They shall know you're my disciples by your critiques of one another. Below me. I mean, this really does get under my skin. I would say it makes my hair stand on end, but it's not going to happen. So Paul preaches. What does he preach about? Magnificent sermon. Some of you say, Gary, I wish you could preach like Paul. I, I've read this about five times in time myself. He probably preached for five minutes. Some of you say, Gary, I wish you could preach like Paul. <laughs> some people preach for five minutes, it seems like an hour, some for an hour it seems like five minutes. Uh, but look at what he does. He stands up in the air, Pagus, there, Pagus. Latin means Mars Hill, stands up at Mars Hill and he says, men of Athens, I observe you're very religious. He pays him a compliment. He says, you're religious men and women. In fact, I saw an idol as I was walking through your streets. It said to an unknown God, you are so religious, you have an idol to cover your base as an unknown God, in case there's a God out there you don't know. You are religious people. And then he sticks the dagger in. What therefore you worship, the end of verse 23, in ignorance I'm going to proclaim to you. You understand what you worship, I'm going to tell you the truth, he says and then he begins foundationally begins with creation all the songs we sang this morning had to do with god and creation because of this passage i read it earlier the god who made the world and all things in it god is the one who created everything the epicureans and the stoics that we just looked at some are saying there is no god he's saying i want you to know there is a god he made everything in fact he is the lord that is he's the king he reigns over heaven and earth you, you may you may think rome is king you may think athens is king i want you to know there's a god who's the king King, there's a God who's greater than everybody. And and then he says, uh, he he, he is the Lord of heaven. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. They had all these idols that dwelled in temples that were made with hands. And he's saying, I-, I want you to know this God is greater than your gods. This God trumps every God that you have. All those idols, or 30,000 idols on the streets and the temples and your houses. They are nothing compared to this God. And then he goes on and he says, he is the one who gives life and gives breath to all things. You, you may think he's unknowable. You-, you may think that you have derived from whatever. I want you to know that there is a God who has given you the life that you have. And, and l- look at verse 26. He has he made from one every nation of mankind, he is the creator of every man on the face of the earth he's determined your appointed times your boundaries, you think you're in charge you're not, he is and so Paul stands up and he preaches this five minute sermon and he just fillets them right to the heart he says that you should seek God if perhaps you might grope for him and find him though he is not far from every one of us he's close by and you can know him you remember the first group, the Epicureans they were agnostics, God is not nobody no, you can know God You just have to seek after him. Then he quotes two of their poets. He understood their culture and studied their culture. Uh, One of their poets again, Ortis, said for in him we have life and move and exist and another one had said for we also have offspring. He said you do have godly men who have written all these things but I want you to know they are not writing about the God of the universe or a God that they know for there is one God, there is one man who's given his life and he's also resurrected. Verse 30, therefore he's concluding, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God has now Declaring to men everywhere, that includes you, Athenians, that you should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who is appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He says, If you want proof that he's the God of the universe and he's the God of all creation and he's created all men and he appoints times, he appoints, appoints boundaries, all you have to do is see that he's resurrected from the dead. And because of the resurrection, everything he said is true, and therefore get on your knees and repent and quit worshiping these false idols. And that message has not changed 2,000 years later. It's the same message for us today. It's the same God, the same Jesus. There were three responses. Three responses. The preaching, and then you move to the response. The first response, look at verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. The, the, the others said they were curious. Well, we shall hear you again concerning these things. So Paul went out of their way, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were, and he lists a couple of names. The response you have rejectors, you have curious seekers, and then you also have those who believe. Nothing's changed over 2,000 years. The gospel goes out. You share Christ with people. I share Christ with people. You have those who are engaging and they want more. Uh, This week I was with a friend. We had dinner together. He invited a mutual friend. We sat for a couple hours at a restaurant, and uh, we shared Christ. We found out, guys from Chicago, we talked about the Bears, the White Sox. We talked about the Cubs. And then the question is, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. We just went through Easter. Do you have one? It's that simple, guys. That's simple. Just turn the conversation and say, Tell me about your spiritual journey. When's the last time you ask anybody that? You think they're going to look at your marriage and look at your life and look at your, and say, Hey, tell me why you live that way. It happens occasionally, but it's rare. We have to make the transition and say, Let me tell you about my Savior. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you why I love my wife the way I do. Let me tell you why I spend my money the way I do. Let me tell you about why I'm kind to other people. Because of my Savior. What about you? Do you know him? Do you know him? Because Paul was quick to say, if not, there's a place of eternal judgment for those who don't. You know The response is threefold: some believe, some are curious, some reject. Well, three three quick things to close. I, in fact, it's time for me to go. Now, uh, some of us reject culture. Some of us uh, receive culture. Some of us redeem culture. What do I mean by that? Well, just as they're varied responses to the gospel, I believe they're varied responses to the culture. Well, Paul understood the culture, and so he spoke into the culture. He he quoted their poets, he talked about their idols, he talked about an idol he saw. Paul understood the Greek culture, although he was there just for days. That's why I did the little spoof with Texas culture. We have to understand where we are at the beginning of the message. And so some of us, we reject culture. I mean, for some of you, you ask the question, how should we as Christians live in a world that celebrates sin, overlooks injustice, and tolerates immorality? And some of you say, well, I'll separate from that world. I'll be separate. That's what the Pharisees did. They separated themselves from the world they lived in. They didn't want to be a part of it. They didn't want to get dirty. They didn't want to be around unbelievers. They didn't want to be around sinners. They didn't want to be around tax gatherers. And so that's what they did. They ended up rejecting the world in which they lived. They separated from the culture. That's what many believers do today. Just be separate from it. I'll find fellow believers. I'll walk with them beside them. I won't be around anybody else. I'll move from circle to circle with only believers, and I'll be very happy while the world goes to hell. There are those who receive culture. We look just like the culture we live in. We're no different than the culture. We're immersed in the culture. We sleep with people who we're not married to. We take drugs we shouldn't take. We look at things we shouldn't look at. We wag our tongue and gossip. We cuss. We do all these things the unbelieving world does. We become part of the culture. We're no different. No different. For those of you that choose to do that, don't talk about Jesus. Don't be sleeping around with some other gal and talk about Jesus don't do it just a hypocrite Don't be doing that you taint the name and reputation of Jesus just be quiet come here pray that you'll get convicted and your life will go right if you're the whiner out there always complaining about the world don't be mean look at the world's coming to look how bad it is I hope I get taken out. Let me tell you about Jesus. Just be quiet. Just be quiet. Some of you are redeeming culture. You're engaging the world where God's placed you. You understand the times. You're engaging the lost. You're looking for ways to impact others. You're a man of influence, a woman of influence, and God's using you. Maybe it's within your family, maybe it's within your neighborhood, maybe it's with you redeeming the culture. Can you tell them a little passionate about this? I hope so. Because I believe believers have lost their saltiness. Instead of engaging the world, we run from the world. And we're satisfied to be in our little Christian huddles. Well, the world around us goes to a crisis, eternity. Redeem culture., how do we redeem culture? I've heard a lot of people rail about homosexuality. How many of you ever sat down with a homosexual? Just to sit with them and ask them what their life is like, and, and, and maybe have an opportunity to talk about the hope of Jesus. It's easy to rail. It's hard to engage liberal politicians now, how many times you sat down with somebody running for office just to listen to them I'll never read that book they don't believe what I believe <laughs> you know what I'm reading right now? the Quran He's going to pray for my pastor he's becoming an Islamist no he's not I've got a neighbor who's, who's a Muslim how do you engage a Muslim if you don't know what they believe the spirit of God is going to protect my heart, my soul, my mind. Why do you think I've read Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus? Why do you think I've read Son of Hamas? We, we've got to engage the world we're in. God's placed us here. Quit begging to be pulled out and immerse yourself in the gospel. In the world he's put you in. He's going to come back. He'll take you to glory. You'll enjoy it then. Till then, don't be enraged with those around you, but be engaged with those around you. There was a man who had built a beautiful cabin in the Rockies, there was a pristine lake outside his window with the Rockies in the background. He could look in the lake and see the reflection of the mountains and every morning he would get up and enjoy his view. Then one morning he noticed that there were bird droppings on the ledge of the bricks just outside his window. So he got up that morning and he spent a couple of hours cleaning the ledge of the bricks. And then his kids came to visit. His grandkids came to visit. And when they left he noticed there were smudges all over the window and so He went and bought buckets and a ladder and a bunch of rags and began cleaning the window. The next day, there were bird droppings, and somebody else came to visit who touched his window with their nose. And before long, the man was spending three or four hours a day cleaning his window. He had the best looking window in all of Colorado, but he quit looking at the mountains. He never saw the lake. His window looked great, but he forgot the majesty that surrounded him. Do you still see the majesty? Because if you do, you'll engage the world as Paul did, saying, look at the creator who's given you everything. Men of Athens, repent and enjoy him. Well, I am ten minutes over. So... Go engage a lost world. Amen? Amen. You're dismissed.